Welcome to our fourth of seven lessons in the series, When Trouble Comes. Lesson four begins on page eight. And you can get the notes for the series by clicking the Class Notebook button that's underneath your media player. You see at the top of page eight, it says section two. In the prior section, with the first three lessons, we looked at the pain of suffering. This lesson and the next three are now in a new section called The Purposes of Suffering. And you see the title of today's lesson is The Inward Direction of Suffering. After that, in the weeks that follow, we'll see that the forward direction of suffering is that God is looking to accomplish something in this in the future. The outward direction of suffering is how that suffering can be used as an outreach in the lives of others. And then we'll look at the upward direction, how suffering brings us closer to God. So inward, forward, outward, and upward over the next few weeks. And all of these fall under the category, the purposes of suffering. Now perhaps over the years you have said or you've heard someone else say, why doesn't God just? Now let me, let me stop there before I fill in the rest because I love it when someone starts their question that way, questioning God. Why doesn't God just? And then you fill in the blank with your questioning of God. You really could just stop there and you could catch yourself and you could answer your own why doesn't God or why does God question with this answer. Well, because he's God. Whatever your why doesn't or why does God question is, he does or doesn't because he's God. And in fact, the Bible teaches that in Romans chapter 9, where questions are put in the mouth of an imaginary interlocutor for rhetorical purposes, asking why does God still blame us since he's the one who determines all things ultimately? And why did God make me like this? And the answers given there are this. Who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? And shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to use the clay as he wishes? So sometimes that's the right answer to our why doesn't God or why does God question, namely, because he's God. But more specifically, if the question is, why doesn't God just eliminate all suffering? Well, one question to ask in response to that question, why doesn't God just eliminate all suffering, is, would you be willing to trade the elimination of suffering by also eliminating the ability of you and everybody else to be a free moral agent and make free choices? then it becomes a little more complicated because if God eliminates all suffering, then he's going to eliminate all the causes of suffering. And unfortunately, that includes you and me. Because we are all sinners, we all contribute in some ways to the suffering that's in the world. Until sin is eliminated, which thankfully, that will happen when the Lord returns. But until that happens, then suffering cannot be eliminated without eliminating us. But the most important reason the Bible gives for God use, God's use of suffering is that he engages in what one author has called soul-making. God actually has purposes in suffering, and those purposes could be summed up with that term soul-making, which is God bolstering and edifying and building up, constructing the souls of his people. And suffering is a key that God uses in that soul-making process. So next time that you're asked or you're tempted to ask yourself, 
Why doesn't God just eliminate all suffering, especially all of the suffering in my life? Remember that there are reasons. And the chief among them is that God uses suffering for soul-making purposes. Over the next four sessions, we're going to look at the various purposes that God has for suffering, starting today with the first, the inward purpose, and what God does in us through suffering, or put another way, the soul-making that God does through suffering. Now, the example you see near the top of page 8 is about the hiker and the lumberjack. A hiker is hiking in a wooded area. He comes upon a lumberjack in a river who's setting up logs for a log roll. And he notices that as the lumberjack is setting these in place, he's putting in some of those logs, spikes, but, but not in others. He's putting a mark on some of them, but not on others. And so the hiker asks him, why are you doing that to some of them, but, but not all the rest? And the lumberjack says the reason is some of these logs have clearly come from trees that were in the valley, where they've not been exposed to the elements and to the weather, and as a result, they have a grain that's coarse and less usable. Others of these logs have obviously come from near the top of the mountain, where they've been exposed to the elements, and as a result, it's very fine grain and very usable lumber. Well, that's the kind of thing that God teaches in Scripture with regard to the soul-making that takes place in suffering, that He allows storms into our lives to accomplish a number of good things that make us more usable in the future, if in fact we benefit as He designs from those events. So here are some of the things that God does in allowing suffering in our lives to make us better for the future. On page 8, it says, we need to remember in our suffering that God values faith. Now let's remind ourselves, what is faith? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 says faith is the evidence of things not seen. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7, it says, we live by faith and not by sight. Now, in that context, it's talking about the fact that though we will one day see the Lord face to face, at present we do not see Him, but we still believe in Him whom we do not see. 2 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. So a succinct definition of faith is believing without seeing. We often say seeing is believing, but the Bible gives us good reason to believe without seeing. Believing in the risen Lord, even though I haven't seen Him. And with regard to our, our trials, it's trusting, it's believing, even though it's not plain to me, it's not clear to me what God is seeking to accomplish. So faith is believing, trusting when we cannot see. Now sometimes people contrast faith, not with sight, but with evidence. That is, they say you have faith when there isn't any evidence. But the Bible does not contrast faith with evidence. It contrasts faith and sight. You see, there is good evidence. There is good reason for us to have faith, for us to trust, and for us to believe God. God has given us ample evidence of His trustworthiness so that we can believe, that is, have faith, even when we don't see. So faith is not a lack of evidence. True. 
God is not telling you up front specifically, this is what I'm going to do, and this is why I'm doing it. But God has given us ample evidence to trust his character in the midst of that situation where you don't see the full plan. And that's why the Bible often points to the resurrection of Jesus as the assurance that whatever we're going through, it's going to ultimately be okay because God raised Jesus from the dead. So the evidence that God has raised Jesus and that Jesus is alive is evidence that we should take our stand in trusting God, believing God, even though you don't see in the moment all that he's seeking to accomplish. God raised Jesus. Therefore, Jesus is going to raise you. The God who raised Jesus is on his throne, and so nothing is out of his control. So God has given us plenty of evidence for us to trust, for us to believe his good designs in the midst of what we don't see. And God values faith because God values being trusted. And he's therefore going to force the issue. He's going to put us in situations where we have to trust him. God also values, secondly on page 8, a life of faith. That is, God wants faith to be a way of life for us. God allows suffering and testing to purify and to increase our faith. But since it's a life of faith that God wants, then let me add to what's in the notes that therefore it's not just in the difficult times. God values an entire life of faith. He wants it to become a way of life so that we trust him more and more, so that we trust him when things seem to be going well, not just when they aren't. Too often what happens is when things are going well, we forget that it's God who makes them that way. And when we have times of difficulty, it reminds us the Lord gives and the Lord can take away. And then the taking away, we now focus on him in a renewed way. But in the good times and the blessings, we are still believing things about God that these things have come to us from his hand, and he's worthy for those things to be used for him. And then thirdly, on page 8, God puts our faith, what we believe, what we claim to believe, on trial. And there are blessings that come out of that. One of those is this. You see written there, the trials and tragedies we experience reveal our true God. Notice little g. And crises have a way of exposing who or what we depend upon for life. Failure to trust God in the alarming moments of life is evidence of a weak faith. So one of the blessings of these trials is to show us the reality of our faith. Is it genuine? Is it authentic? Is it real? To put this another way, God uses trials as a time to purify our faith, to expose and remove dross that is in our faith, to peel away that which is not genuine and not real so that our faith is strengthened for the next day and the next week and the next year. And God also desires, at the bottom of page 8, that we become dependent on the provider and not just the provision. It's through our difficulties, we say at the bottom of that page, that we come to understand God's presence and power over despair. Most of us rely on what God does for us rather than upon God himself. When we become focused on the things that God has given us, he may choose to remove those distractions so that we can see him more clearly and redirect our attachment from the things of this world to God himself. Now, how do you do that? How do you and I 
practice a regular dependency, a regular trust, a regular faith in God, while at the same time carrying out our responsibilities. On the one hand, God has told me there's stuff that I've got to do, and so I'm not to just sit around and say, I'm waiting for God to do something. I'm just letting go and letting God, as many people say. Yes, the bill collectors are coming, but I'm just letting go and letting God. So God has given us responsibilities, and yet we're also to trust Him. So how on the one hand do I carry out those responsibilities, and then on the other hand, fully trust God in all of that? Well, there are a couple of phrases that I've used in counseling and in preaching and teaching that I think help us with that. We need to understand the difference between two circles of life. One is our circle of concern. So you could just draw on a piece of paper a circle and then just write at the top of that circle the word concern. Now all that goes in your circle of concern, how much stuff you're concerned about, depends on how thoughtful you are. That is, how much you think, how much you brood. Now ladies, perhaps especially, listen carefully. And I say that, ladies, because it's my observation over the years that ladies tend to think about all sorts of things that are in their circle of concern, and so it's completely filled. And smarter people than me have made that observation, one of whom is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Michigan. Not a Christian woman, but she's a keen observer of behavior, and she wrote a book called Women Who Think Too Much. And in it, she gives a number of reasons why women tend to brood more than men. Now, it's a general tendency, because we all worry sinfully from time to time. We all have anxiety from time to time, men and women. So all of us should listen up on this. We all have a circle with our concerns in it. And what all that you're concerned about depends on how much you brood, how much you think. So you might be concerned about, say, like everything. <laughs> if you're concerned about everything and everybody and what everybody's doing and what everybody did, what, e what everybody's doing and why you didn't get invited to what everybody else is doing, then your mind is just spinning like a top, just worrying around because you're concerned about everything. Let's be honest. Many of us are just one big fat circle of concern. We're concerned about world hunger, possible war in the Middle East, how China inflicted the coronavirus on the world on purpose, and on it goes. But your circle of concern also includes all the stuff that's going on around you and everybody else's life around you. And you're watching it, and you're drawing conclusions about it, and you're thinking about it, and sometimes you just blurt it out and it's making you crazy. It's my all-too-big circle of concern. But then within your circle of concern is the smaller circle. And you could just draw a smaller circle inside it and label that one responsibility. There's your circle of concern and then there's your circle of responsibility. And if you can focus on what God Almighty has given you in your circle of responsibility, which take my word for it, is way narrower than your circle of concern, and you can focus yourself on that, it will give you a peace of mind that you may have never had. The circle of responsibility, friends, is quite large enough for every one of us. Just the circle of stuff that God has given me to do and that He holds me responsible for is enough without concerning myself with all sorts of other things that He's not given to me. That's the way I believe we should pursue our relationship with God. 
He gives us responsibilities. He holds us responsible for carrying them out. And we do our best by God's grace before him to fulfill those responsibilities. And then we not only don't worry about it, we trust God. We have faith. We believe. Lord, I'm doing my level best by your grace with the gifts that you have given me to carry out the responsibilities that you've assigned to me. And now, Lord, I trust you. I trust you to work it out. I'm taking care of my circle of responsibility, and I'm asking you to take care of my circle of concern. How's it going to turn out? What's going to happen in the future? What's going to happen with my kids? All the possibilities of things that could happen that you brood about and worry about and have panic attacks about, Lord, I'm entrusting those to you. On page 9, God desires that we have a humble heart, and we'll He's going to use suffering in order to create that if necessary. One of the passages that's listed at the top of page 9 is 2 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a passage where Paul, who wrote it, says that my strength is made perfect in weakness. That is, my strength, my power is matured, it grows. That's what made perfect means. It happens by God's grace shining all the brighter in the weakness that he allows to come into my life. And what was that weakness in Paul's life? It was what he called a thorn in his flesh. It doesn't identify precisely what that was, but many of us believe it was a physical malady that God allowed Paul to suffer. But whatever it was, it was something God allowed and that God used in order to keep Paul humble. That's precisely what Paul says in that chapter. He says, I have all sorts of reasons to be prideful. He says in that chapter that he had been to the third heaven, the abode of God. How many can say that? And that he's been given revelations from God. And all these surpassing great graces that God had given to Paul could have made him prideful. And therefore, God gave him the thorn in the flesh to humble him. Now, at the top of page 9, we have the example of Bill. Bill is a guy who's a self-made success in his career, in his entire life, he's been climbing up the corporate ladder. He has a wife and he has three kids. The kids are smart, they're doing well in school, but the truth is Bill's wife and his kids are really not primarily for him to love and to relate to. Instead, they're mostly trophies to show off Bill's success. But Bill then has a car accident. He thinks everything's okay and he continues in the same pattern, except that in his demeanor he becomes different. The car accident was relatively minor, but now, in the aftermath, something's different. Now, he had never been a particularly kind guy, but he also wasn't overbearing. But now, after this accident, he's become angry, and he's acting in ways that he hadn't before. So he finally goes to the doctor, they do some exams, and they recognize that an internal brain injury had occurred in that accident. He's going to have to undergo brain surgery. The result of that humbling event was that it changed Bill as he began to realize very quickly what was really important and how prideful he had become. Sometimes God brings difficulty into our lives to humble us. He did it with Paul. He may have to do it with me. He may have to do it with you. In the middle of page 9, God desires to test our faithfulness, to prove that we're up for the next assignment, because the truth is God always has a next assignment. And I have to remember this in my own life, as do you. 
I'll have big projects in my life. And when that project's completed, I'll say, okay, that's done. And then I think I can skate now. Okay, the building project is done that we went through here at our church a few years ago. So now we're on easy street. But God always has a next assignment, a next thing that he wants you and me to take to the next level. That means he has to prepare us at prior levels in order for us to be ready. So the example on page 9 is the example of a sponge, and it's a simple, simple example. There are all kinds of sponges. Depending on the job you have uh, to get done, some will work and some won't. And God is trying to make us the kind of people that will be able to do the job that he assigns to us, a job that we don't even know until he assigns it. So as example, take Abraham in the first part of your Bible. We all know that Abraham is the father of the faithful. He was a man of great faith. We sometimes forget that Abraham failed many times in his faith before he finally was ready for the big test, the final exam. You may remember how he failed when God told him to go to one place, but he decided to take a detour in a famine and go to Egypt. And while he was there, he lied about the identity of his wife. He also had been promised a son by God, but because God delayed in delivering on that promise, Abraham took matters into his own hands. He had a son, Ishmael, by his servant, not by his wife. And then when God did announce that Isaac was going to be born to his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, he laughed. In fact, the name Isaac means laughter. So he failed a number of times before this passage in Genesis chapter 22 and the severe test in which God had him go to Mount Moriah with his son Isaac and to sacrifice him. Now, many of you know the story that God did not ultimately require the life of Isaac because he intervened at the last minute. But he did severely test Abraham, and Abraham was ready for that test. And that was in large part because of the failures that had gone on before and things he had learned through those failures. So God desires to test our faithfulness because there's a greater exam that's coming. And then lastly, at the bottom of page 9, God desires well-behaved children. That is, God disciplines those who are his children. Now, the example at the bottom of the page is of a cassette player. Now, many of you have never even seen a cassette player, but work with me here. Uh, once upon a time in a land far away, recordings could be stored on tape. And those tapes were wound in small cassettes, and they were played on a cassette player. Now, if you had misbehaved as a child, then your parents might have as one form of discipline to take your cassette player away. Today, it would be your smartphone. It's taken away as a form of discipline. And that's what God does with his children. Sometimes he disciplines. And sometimes that discipline means taking away for reasons that are listed on page 10. They're taken away in order to teach us. In order to teach us uh, obedience. In order to bring confession and repentance. To demonstrate his love. To help us to know him in a more personal way. To make us holy. So sometimes the suffering in our lives is for disciplinary purposes. Now how can you know? How can you know when suffering in your life is a matter of being disciplined or it's just a result of living in a fallen world? Well, the answer is most often you do not. Very often you do not know that God is using a particular thing for discipline 
because you're doing something wrong, or if it's simply because I'm living in a fallen world. And so since I can't know which it is, what I ought to do is always seek to learn from every circumstance that God brings. And if I do that, no matter what God's ultimate purpose is, because He hasn't told me whether it's corrective discipline or just because I'm being hit with the shrapnel of the war that goes on in a fallen world, if I do that, then I'll still be able to achieve God's designs, whether discipline or otherwise. Now, I don't want to scare anybody, but I just want to make this statement, and then I'll, I'll move on. But the Bible does teach that if you're a child of God and you're living in sin, He will discipline you. If you were living in disobedience to God, He's going to discipline you. If He does not discipline you and you're living in regular, continued disobedience to God, then it may be that you're not God's child. I will tell you as a pastor that one of the things I fear is getting a phone call about people in my church whom God has chosen to discipline because I know they're living in unrepentant sin. And if they're children of God, God will not allow that to go on. I fear getting that phone call and then having to go to the hospital and so-and-so is there. I can't know just like you can't know. What I can know is that God does that. And how do I know He does that? Because Hebrews chapter 12 says so. I know it because 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says so. That God does this in the lives of those who are genuinely His children, but who are going in the opposite direction, and He is not going to allow that to continue and so he will have to cut that back in their lives. Now I'd like to end our time with the story of a young Christian couple who met in Bible college and they were serving the Lord at a Christian camp in California. They had just finished their final day of camp there and they were scheduled to be married in just a month. They decided after the last day of camp that they would drive north towards San Francisco and they'd camp out. Now, you might say to yourself, wait a minute, they're not married yet, and they're Christians, so they can't sleep together. Now, that's true. But this young couple actually slept in separate sleeping bags, and I'll tell you how I know that in a minute. But they just went to enjoy this time together and enjoy God's creation. They found a secluded spot on a beach, and they put down these sleeping bags, and they went to sleep. And that night, someone walked up to this young couple and shot them, shot them both in the head, and they died in their sleep on this beach in California. They were to, re were to return to the camp to get their belongings and to move out uh, and get on with their wedding, but obviously they didn't return. When they didn't, their families were notified. They had family in Michigan and in Ohio. The young man is from Zeeland, Michigan. The young lady from Fresno, Ohio. I didn't know there was a Fresno, Ohio until I heard about this story. Both sets of parents are Christians just as this young couple was. They knew something was wrong when they got this call and they went out to California and a couple of days into it, the investigators found their bodies on the beach. They had each been shot, as I say, as they lay in their separate sleeping bags. The families were notified and these two sets of parents had to deal with the news of the murder of their children, children who were just in their mid-twenties and who were serving the Lord. Investigators later told the parents that the autopsy confirmed that they had not engaged in sex, that they were keeping their vow to the Lord and each other to wait until they were married. Now, what ended up happening out of that was the young lady's parents in Ohio developed a friendship with the police sergeant in California, the one 
who had to break the news to them. Now that father in Ohio is a pastor. And the sergeant later said that when he gave the news to the parents, something was different about this guy's reaction. Not only did he not fall apart, he almost had a joy about it. Now, how weird is that? And it prompted the sergeant to ask the pastor, what's the deal with you? Giving the pastor the opportunity then to witness to this police officer about his faith in Christ and the fact that he was certain that his daughter was instantly with Jesus. And he told that officer, I wish I was with her. And not only that, he told him, I'm going to be with her. So the cool thing is she's with Jesus, he says. The minute you told me she died, I'm thinking about my loss, yes, but I'm thinking she's with Jesus. And the officer says, I've never seen anything like it. As a result, that sergeant came to the Lord. He's an elder in his church out in California. Now, I learned of that story several years ago because it was told to me by a former member of our church, Sharon Sternberg, who many of you know, James and Sharon, moved to the west side of the state a few years ago. But Sharon's daughter was a very close friend of the young lady who was killed. And I tracked down the girl's father in Ohio, and we corresponded several years ago. He was kind enough to send me his written testimony about all of that. Here are some of the things that he said. He said, there are some truths that, have been stand, that we have been standing on as a couple in the aftermath of our daughter's death. The first is this, he says, that Jason and Lindsay were born to die young, but to live forever. They were born to die young, but to live forever. And he goes on to explain, none of this was outside of the control of God. God knew every piece of this. I've known that my whole life, he says. I've preached that my whole life, and I believe that now. And he said, secondly, they were ready. Now, how do I know they were ready? Because I know they knew Jesus, and Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And then he goes on to say, we're also standing on the truth that God is good. And I know God is good because I've seen it throughout Scripture. I've seen it in the story of Joseph and the treachery of his brothers and God weaving all of those circumstances together. And even though Joseph's brothers meant it for evil, God intended it for good. And then he recounts the story of this police officer who came to Jesus through all of that and the countless people that they've been able to help with their testimony. He says another truth that we're standing on is the fact that God is being glorified through this. He says there's something even more important than the physical lives of our two precious children. Not much that's more important, but just one thing, God's glory. Their deaths were not in vain. God is being glorified, which is our highest hope. And we trust him, we reverence him, and we worship him. He says, as Christian parents who adore their children and still deeply grieve our great loss, we are satisfied in Christ, and now we understand what Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 that I mentioned earlier. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Therefore, he says, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. We can't explain what's going on in us and to us and through us, but we know we're going to experience satisfaction, peace, and power then it's going to have to come from God's grace. 
which we found to be more than enough. We know of his worth. We are satisfied in him, this man says. And then he says, here's another truth. Satan is a punk. He says, who am I? He's a powerful enemy. I respect his power, but I do not fear him because in Christ, he is a defeated foe. So I stand by faith in the strength of the Lord. Satan used an utterly evil coward to try to mess with our faith and to neutralize Jason and Lindsay's testimony, but the punk's plan didn't work. And then he gives a final truth. We're trusting God fully. We have no idea who killed our kids, he told me five years ago. We still have, after all these years, an incredibly professional team of detectives who are working our case and who are dedicated to capturing Lindsay and Jason's killer, and we couldn't be more proud of them. And yet, we still may be miles away from solving the case. But as Peter said, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we can actually pity the murderer, for he doesn't have to deal with the pitiful anger and piddly little hate-filled parents, but he has to face the terrible wrath of the living God whose very face is against him. Don't talk to me about getting the guy for closure, this pastor said. Listen, case closed, he said. Now, as a postscript to that story, those murders were in uh, 2004, and I first heard the story in 2014. But in the last couple of years, a suspect was apprehended and convicted just last year. It turns out that he was a severely mentally disturbed man who had pulled to the side of that road on that night, saw a couple lying on the beach, took a gun, and for no reason whatsoever, shot them dead. But God always has a reason for what he allows. And the faith of those parents is amazing, is it not? But friends, that's a faith drawn directly out of the Word of God and families who believe it and teach it and live it. So that when the time of testing for their faith came, they were actually able to show it and articulate it to others. And that can be the case for any one of us. Because that's what Jesus does in the faith that he generates in his people. That's the kind of faith I hope that God builds in me, builds in you, so that we can be testimonies like they are. Lindsay's father said that she had a poster hanging in her bedroom on her bedroom wall, and it said this, the fellowship of the unashamed. And he said, this is how I think of Jason and, and Lindsay. And I, too, he says, am part of the fellowship of of the unashamed. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ. I won't look back, let up, slow down, or back away. My past is redeemed, my present makes sense, and my future is secure. I am finished and done with low living, with sight walking, with small planning, with smooth knees, colorless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap giving, and dwarfed goals. I'm no longer needing preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. He says, I'm going to live by faith. I'm going to lean on his presence. I'm going to walk with patience, live by prayer, and labor with power. My face is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions are few, 
but my guide is reliable and my mission is clear. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, delayed, or discouraged from the call of God. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity, he says. I won't give up, shut up, and let up until I've stayed up, stored up, and prayed up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. I must go until He comes, preach until all know, and work until He stops me. And when He comes to get His own, He will have no problem recognizing me. Because my banner is clear. I am part of the fellowship of the unashamed. May that be true of all of us as God's people. Let's bow before Him. Father, we thank You for allowing us this time to recall these things that You teach us in Your Word about some of the purposes that You seek to fulfill and accomplish in the things that You allow in our lives. Lord, we thank You for the truth of Holy Scripture that is as timely today as when it was first written. We thank You for the examples of faith, many examples of faith that You have given us in its pages. And then, Lord, but it's not just then and there, but it's here and now. That your work is in your people, and you are producing that same kind of faith, that same kind of trust, same kind of belief in you, come what may. We thank you for the powerful testimony of these parents who suffered something unimaginable for most of us. And yet when the time came, they were able to summon what they had preached and read and amened and taught for all of these years. You not only sustained them so that they survived, but they have thrived. You've used them as your tools to move your work forward. Thank you, Lord. Do that in me. Do that in us, we ask. Glorify yourself through all that you allow. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have a great week serving. We'll see you next Sunday, Lord willing.